Hello and welcome to the Future Work Life podcast. My name is Ollie Henderson and in a couple of weeks, series 12 of this podcast will be kicking off. In the meantime, after receiving some brilliant feedback from republishing the Daniel Pink episode in March, over the next couple of weeks, I'll be sharing 12 of my favourite episodes since I launched Future Work Life. And today you'll hear my conversation with Marcus Buckingham from January 2023. Let's talk about weird. What's your weird and what does it have to do with your career? Uh, well, yeah. So one of the things that um, is really interesting for all of us that have run businesses um, is that the people that we have joined our teams are different in terms of how they are motivated, how they make sense of data, how they make decisions, how they build relationships. So you're like, whoa, almost immediately you're aware of different people's differences. What's funny is that you're first aware of that in a family. And yet if you study any sort of psychology at university or at school, you're not told much about individual different psychology. And yet individual different psychology is is probably the psychology you'd be most interested in because you want to know why you're different than your sister. You have three kids. They're all weirdly different, but they've got the same DNA, but they're really different. And they're going to stay different as they grow up. In fact, they'll get more different <laughs> as they mm. grow up. <laughs> and you, we're not really told much about that, right? So why is, why is Serena Williams different than Venus Williams? Why do they play? Yes, they play tennis, but they do it really differently. George Clooney's sister is called Ada Clooney. She's not an actress. She's an accountant specializing in payroll. Same aunt, Rosemary Clooney, who supposedly you know, inspired George to become an actor. But she had the same aunt and the same genes, and she's an accountant specializing in Neil Armstrong had an elder brother, Dean Armstrong. Dean Armstrong was a bank manager. Why? (laughs) And you're not really helped to know much about that. And yet the really interesting differences between people are are massive and inside the same families. We now know that that difference is caused by unbelievably massive synaptic connection patterns in your brain. And, And you have more synaptic connections in your brain, Ollie, than there are stars in 5,000 Milky Ways. And that's not hyperbole, like actually more stars and planets. I mean, that's how 100 trillion synaptic connections, which causes you to be different than your sister or your brother or whatever siblings you may have. And the same with your kids. And it's overwhelming, right? Now, the the ancient Norse had a term for this overwhelming uniqueness that you have. And I don't know whether this is true with your kids, but I know with my kids, like I had two kids, the moment my son was born, he actually, when we, he, right before he was born, we lost his heartbeat and then he got it back. And then we lost his heartbeat. Then we got it back and we all, everyone was freaking out. So they took him, to, we went to the delivery room and when he was born, the doctor was like, come here. I, I've never seen this before. And as a dad, you're like, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> I don't want to hear that. But he, he would, the doctor said, look, he's got his umbilical cord and he's gripping it really tightly. And then he's fainting. And then he's waking up and then he's gripping it really wow. tight. He's fainting, he's waking up. That's why we were losing the heartbeat. And, and I'm not saying Jack hasn't grown and changed, but he, he kind of goes through life that way, right? Super intense. Yeah. And then, you know, and um, the, any parent knows that your kid is sort of born with this uniqueness sort of already there. The Norse called that a weird, W-Y-R-D. And they didn't mean weird as in you're strange. They meant you have a diamond or a spirit or a a thing in there already that's really unique and it can grow and develop, but it's really weird and it's inside you. And mm. their whole point, you know, a thousand years ago is you need to know what yours is. You need 
now today we would say we you need to know what some of your natural patterns of recurring thought feeling and behavior are you need to know something so that's how we talk about it today they i think rightly were helping us know no 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 every human has got something in them that is super distinct it leads you to love some things and loathe others at, at the five foot level, love certain activities and loathe others. Not like love painting, but hate numbers, but like what kind of painting and when, under what circumstances. Weirds are really specific in terms of the particular activities that you love. And so in mm. terms of your career, it is super helpful to be able over the course of your life to get really granular into what are the particular activities that you love in a day, a day's got like thousands of activities. Every, every day is a thousand activities, a thousand threads, if you like. Mm. And, and some of them are white, some of them are gray, black, green, you know, a little emotionally neutral. But some of them have got real emotional punch in them for you. They're red threads. And a weird, if you like, is how do you know what your weird is? Well, you pay attention to the particular activities in a day that seem to be red threads of yours. And you don't need to find a job that's 100% red threads. We have no data on that at all. Nobody who's really good loves all that they do. That's just complete rubbish. But they do, the data we're looking at seems to suggest 20% red threads. Do you know right. what your red threads are? The activities that you love in a day and you can find 20%, but every day, not like once a month, I have mm. a red thread day or something. Then you're, then you're much more, your brain chemistry changes. You are yeah. more creative. You're more innovative. You're more resilient. All sorts of good things happen when you can figure out what your weird uh, is and what yeah. those red threads are. Love that. I think it's so true as well. It's made. It's, I can. I can see that in the work that I've done. You know, the past couple of years, there are certain activities that I've incorporated into my life, and it just makes me feel happy about starting work each day rather than dreading it. So that's probably probably a sign I found a red thread. And I suppose on that. Why is it important to get really specific about describing the things we love doing in our work? So I've been take take the phrase, I love a challenge. I think that's a, the example example you give in your book. Loads of people say, Oh, you know, I love a challenge. It's probably something you'd write on on a CV. Why is that not enough to convince you, for example, that that's someone you'd want on your team? What else would you want to know? How specific do you need to go in identifying those red threads? Well, yeah. And first of all, what you just said was so interesting. We tend to have a really odd relationship to our work days. In fact, the words that we use are, I need to get through the day. You know, you wake up, well, I got to get through today. And, mm. and that means your day is sort of an enemy that you're, got, you're trying to keep it at bay and get through it because half your to-do list rolled over from yesterday and you just wake up and you're your sympathetic nervous system has been activated. You're in fight or flight sort of from the get-go. And one of the things I was hoping for with the book, Love and Work, was could you change your relationship to your day before you start trying to fix your entire career? Could you change your relationship to your day and just imagine that it's actually trying to put on a show for you? Your day every day is your wisest, most loving friend, weirdly, because it's trying to put on a show for you every day and basically go, what about this thread? How about this thread? How about this one? How about that one? How about this mm. one? 
Every day you've got emails to write, activities, a person to call, a confrontation, a piece of creative writing, uh, a, a set of Excel spreadsheets. Like you got, I don't know, you got a bunch of stuff coming at you, and your day's kind of going. Are any of these red? <laughs> and you need to think about your day like that because we were talking about balance before we started the podcast. Nothing healthy in nature is balanced, right? Everything healthy in nature is moving. Health is motion. Health is motion. Everywhere health is mm. motion. You're moving through an environment. Obviously, as humans, we move through our days and so on, but we're moving through environments and trying to get the nourishment we need to keep moving through the environment. That is the best metaphor for health, nourishment through motion. So how yeah. do you go through a day? How do you go through a day and find these red threads? overarchingly, that's what you're trying to do in life. Move forward through your life, make a contribution and be nourished by it, not depleted by it. The specificity you talk about is what, what's super weird and what no one tells us. Even when we study like four years of psychology, no one says to you, by the way, actions themselves are emotionally valent. Actions, actual activities have emotional ingredients in them. They're, they're emotional and the specificity of that action is really important because like, let's say that, and we know this because my first 10 years I was at the Gallup organization building pre-employment selection instruments. And we know the most common answer to the question, what do you, what do you love to do? It's one of the questions we ask. What do, you, what do you love to do? Second most common answer was the one you said, I love challenge. Uh, the most common answer though, uh, by quite a long way, is I love working with people. I love people. Love working with people. And yet what you're really looking for in terms of a red thread is initially just a verb. What are you doing with the people? Do you love selling to the people? Or do you love teaching the people? Or do you love caring for the people? Or do you love, in just let's start with a verb. And then how about which people? Do you love selling to people that you've already built a relationship with? Or do you like knocking on a door? Some people do and like trying to build a relationship really fast and sell to them really quickly. Which bit of the sale do you like? Do you like the explaining bit or do you love the clothes? Do you love the clothes? Do you know? Because it's really different. By the way, if you go into pharmaceutical sales and what you really love, a red thread of yours is getting the yes. And what you really love is getting people to actually say yes when they didn't intend to. Like that sort of specificity. And you become a pharmaceutical sales rep because it said sales on the LinkedIn thing. Well, you're going to be massively frustrated every day in your job because as a pharmaceutical sales rep, you never close. It's all influence. You don't even know until three months later whether they've, like, whether somebody's filled more prescriptions of your particular drug. So the specificity of, wait a minute, you don't like working with people. You like selling to people a, something that you know a lot about and actually getting a yes. Okay. I call that in the book, I call that a love note because I was just mm. like, could you just write, I love it when? And then finish the sentence. I love yeah. it when what? I love it when I persuade somebody to do something they didn't intend to do and I get a yes. And then I like doing it again. Okay, that's really beautifully specific. What self-efficacy that gives you, it means that you can wake up the next day and actually be intentional about finding a red thread today. Can you yeah. write one of those love notes? Could you write two? Could you write three? Look at your three kids. Wouldn't it be so great, Ollie, if they graduated at 18 and they could write from themselves, not from some teacher, but from themselves, three or four specific red threads that they, and yes, they'll find new ones as they grow into work, 
But graduating from school and going, you know what? I love it when and get that kind of yeah. granular specificity, which of course is where love yeah. lives, isn't it? What do you think is preventing people from doing it now? Is it that they just don't know that this simple technique of writing I love it when can reveal something so profound and so enlightening about the things that they love doing do they not know about that is it that they don't have the time are we not leading them in the right way because I don't hear people don't talk in this way do they I just wonder when it seems such a simple approach and language that we understand you know I love it when it's it's the base language, isn't it? It's one of the first things we say in our lives. You know, we love our family. We love the parents looking after us. And yet when we get into the workplace, we obviously find it difficult to use this language. Well, it's not just the workplace, is it? Because it, to answer your question, one of the, well, the first answer is I don't know. Like I don't know. I don't have any data as to why don't we help individuals know how to use the raw material of a regular week of their life to nourish them. Like we know it changes your brain chemistry. We know not that you turn out to be amazing at everything you love. There are some things that we love to do that we never actually get good enough to have someone pay us to do. And they're called hobbies. And that's mm. why they're good. They bring more love into your life. So it's not a perfect linear one-to-one -one correlation, but we do know that when you're doing an activity that you love, we do know that you have these elevated levels of certain neurotransmitters like serotonin or norepinephrine and andamide. We, and we do sort of know what that does to your brain. It dysregulates your neocortex. And so it opens you up to what mm. Roger Fredrickson calls broaden and building. So you're, you're more creative. Your brain on drugs looks terrible. Your brain on love, well, you're, you're at your best. So yeah. there are really good benefits to this all around. And yet it, it, it probably is that we, well, first of all, we haven't actually uh, spread the, the truth that activities themselves are, are emotionally laden. Like we, mm. it's the stupidest thing, but we've never told people the actual activities that you fill your day with, regardless of what your why is, your mission. The actual activity, the how you're doing it, what are you doing every day? That's super duper important in terms of your own nourishment and capability. Certain activities, for no good reason other than the clash of your chromosomes, you're weird. Um, some people love confrontation and are really, really good. The more angry somebody gets in front of them, the colder, the clearer, the calmer their brain gets, and they just actually slip into a zone. And somebody else, maybe their brother, confrontation for them is like, I just, I'm super smart, but I can't. The moment I'm having to actually interact with someone in that way, my brain, I can't even say why, but it shuts my brain down. And, yeah. and so that's the first thing is that human uniqueness is manifested in, in what kind of emotional energy we get from certain activities. We don't start there. We should start there. The second thing is a very good reason, I think. It's like we think that people should have endless potential. And so we say to someone, doesn't matter who you are. You could be anything. You, you can be anything you want to be. Growth mindset. You should have a growth mindset. There's nothing in there. You're just an empty vessel. And, and if you want to learn how to be better at confrontation, ah, you work, 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 and you can get better at confrontation. And so that feels really good to say to someone. Like you'd be really good to say it to your kids to go, you know, you could be anything. And while it feels really good to say, the poor individual, of course, is like, yeah, but I'm me, actually. 
and and me has certain recurring patterns that I'm familiar with even at seven or eight years old. Mm. So some part of it is like really well intended. And then I think the last thing is that so many of us at work, we feel like we missed it. We feel even if you dive into this notion of love and work and that actually your life is trying to show you about you, like love is decoding you every single day. They're like, ah, oh, but I'm 45. You know, I, I, gosh, I wish I'd done that when I was 18, but I didn't. And so yeah. now it's gone. Uh, but I've had 35-year-olds say that, 30-year-olds say that. Have people yeah. that graduate with an accounting degree going, well, I'm 21. It's sort of over because yeah. I, I have four years to be an accountant. Yeah. And that part of it is so, oh, gosh, that part of it is so saddening because it's like, yeah, no, you've got so many, however old you are, you've got so many days left. And yeah. no matter how comfortable your bed is, sooner or later, you've got to get out of it. And when you get out of it, you're going to bump into activities, moments, situations, people. So it's like it's never too late to figure out how your life is trying to fill you up. It just never is. You've had a career where you did something for a long time, then you stopped and you're doing something else now. And yeah. that's possible for anyone. Oh, completely. I mean, I, I absolutely relate to that. Three years ago, I had not written outside of an email since I was at school. And now I spend probably 75% of my time writing. And you know what? I really enjoy it. And I didn't know I enjoyed it. And I only actually started doing it to try to help me work out what I wanted to do next. And I'm not, I'm not sure I'll be a, a writer full time, but it's revealed something to me. And it's, I can say that I love it when I sit down on my own and put some jazz on and get into flow for 90 minutes writing about a subject. I understand a little bit, wanna, but want to explore more. That's what I, one of the things I love doing. You see, that's so vivid because it's like I don't, I write a lot. It's my 10th book, right? But I don't like doing that. Like I don't, I, I can't write anything for the first 90 minutes. I don't want any mm. music on. And I actually can only write, if I sit down for three hours, I'll only ever write for 45 minutes right at the end. Right. And that yeah. bit for me at the end is everything, but I can't get there. And I need to know that about, you need to know, like, well, I love writing. No, you don't. You love yeah. what you just described, which yeah. is so vivid. What's super cool though, Ali, like, you do this with a nine-year-old. You can do it with a nine-year-old. There's mm. three clues to a red thread, right? Like before you do something, you find yourself looking forward to it. That's a good clue. Positive anticipation. While you're doing it, time flies by. That's flow. Mike Chekshimahai's time speeds up. Steps fall away. And then after you're done with it, you kind of almost want to do it again. You're not drained. Thank God that's over. You're like invigorated. So three yeah. really good clues. But you give them to a nine-year-old, you give the nine-year-old a blank pad of paper and, and, and draw a line down the middle of it, put loved it at the top of one column, loathed it at the top of the other. You send the kid around for a week and say, just look for three signs. Look for those three signs. And any time you see any one of them, and sometimes they might conflict with each other, like you might be procrastinating, but when you're doing it, time flies by, like that sometimes happens. Scribble them down. Like we've done this with like thousands of nine-year-olds and they get to the end of the week and they've got all the answers. <laughs> like the, the, they've written down what they love and it's really beautifully specific. Even if it's video mm. games, it's not video. I love playing video games. It's like, no, you yeah. don't. I like this video game in this sort of in, environment, actually playing with these players. I like to be this person. They like, 
And you're like, as a dad, I'm sure you're like, whoa, yeah, why <laughs> didn't why those things? <laughs> well, no, I just. Yeah. But that's the sort of thing you we can do if we're running a team. And you're like, I don't know my people. Okay, give them a blank pad. Send them around for just do love it, loathe it for a week. And mm. the, what you get from that loved it list is like, oh, well, that those are red threads, aren't they? You don't have to have yeah. a perfect job. Like, you don't have to have 90% red threads. But for a manager to not know or to not help a person know what their red threads are, what, what a shame, because it's right mm. there. Yeah, I mean, another revelation for me over the past couple of years has been writing this stuff down. So at the end of each day, I have a couple of habits I've developed, one of which kind of focuses on my work. And I, I'll pick out three highlights of my day. And, and sometimes you, you sit down and you're like, there's no way I've got three highlights of today. But I force myself. I find three highlights of my day. And then separately, I also have um, a log of, I write down one memorable moment from, that I've had with my family each day. And again, sometimes you're like, this is such an unremarkable day. How am I going to do it? Now, I'll tell you what, it, it, well, it does a few things. First of all, it's improved my memory. When you've got three young kids, it's amazing how many things you forget. So that's, you know, there's a benefit there. But it's done a couple of other things. One has highlighted the things that I do enjoy. And another thing, actually, and I'm pivoting slightly here into the strengths part. So you mentioned earlier on, not everything that you love is something that you would consider a strength, or at least not something that you might use within your work. But actually, in the same way that you can pick out trends when you start writing these things down and logging them around the things that you enjoy and that you love, you also start realizing, actually, I'm bloody good at that thing. And I hadn't really thought I was good at that thing, but I keep identifying things that I've excelled at or that I'm really proud of doing. I'm interested from your point of view whether there are some practical ways that we can use to track progress that we're making and get a picture of our strengths. Well, First of all, what you're talking about is you're talking about attention and you've put a discipline to attention. And what you're realizing, and everyone can realize this too, is that attention is a creative act. So the fact that you've chosen to, to put a ritual around your attention means that you are creating a uh, deeper understanding of what those moments are, and then a greater likelihood that you're going to be able to manufacture them, build on them, refine them, and also draw nourishment from them when they occur tomorrow and mm -hmm. the next day. So that's the first thing I would take away from your story here is that you've, you've been intentional about attention. Second, for people to take away from what you're doing is it's a ritual. Like what's a ritual for? A ritual is for friction, Rituals are deliberately designed to create friction in the flow of life. So that's mm. what you've done. Any, we're about to go into Christmas, right? There's a lot of rituals in Christmas. There are a lot of rituals in religion. There's a lot. What, what is a ritual for? It's for friction. And what friction mm. does is it slows your attention down for a minute and makes you look at something. And so for all of us, yeah. like what rituals do you have in your life that focus your attention? Some people might say, well, I don't have any. Uh, yes, you do. And your rituals are either intentional or unintentional, but you've got them. So it might be worth for all of us thinking, what are the rituals that I have that get me thinking about paying attention to the things that I love? You just described two. Those are, those are great, actually. Um, one last thing about strengths, though, what's interesting is we're told a strength is what we're good at and a weakness is what we're bad at. But actually, 
That's not the right definition. Properly defined, a strength is what strengthens you and a weakness is what weakens you, even if you're not good at it or even if you are good at it. Because all of us have some things that we are really good at that we hate. Like everybody has some things that we're totally capable of doing, but if we never have to do it again, it would be a day too soon. Like nobody goes, what are you talking about? Like everyone's got that. Some things where you're good and you hate it. What do we call that? Should we call that a strength? Well, why would you, you can't call that a strength because it drains the living daylights out of you. Let's call that a weakness. A weakness is anything that weakens you. A strength is anything that strengthens you. So in a sense, the raw material of strength is love. That's why Mm. I called the book Love and Work because love, as you said, the first thing you start looking for when you're born isn't food, it's love. Like love is the universal human language and, and love is the, the DNA of strengths. Like what are those love notes? I love it when, well, those are really strengths. Those are things that strengthen you. What's good or bad? Well, that's performance. That's performance. Let's just call that performance. Yeah. And the thing that you described with your strength of sitting down for, for 90 minutes with some jazz on it. Okay. That's a strength. And and if a strength is what strengthens you, of course, you're the best judge of it. You know it better than anyone. No one could come in and say, you don't love that, Ollie. Because you go, yeah. uh, no, no, I, I, no, I could say, well, look, I read the stuff you wrote and I didn't really understand it. Like, <laughs> I'm the judge of that. But you're the yeah, judge yeah. of like, no, 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 I totally. I, so that's an interesting definition for your kids at school, by the way. A strength is what you're good at. Weakness is what you're bad at. No, a, a strength is what strengthens you, kids. And a weakness is what weakens you. And you know it before the teacher does. Now, what you do with that, whether you can actually bother to revise or study or turn it into a good essay, like okay, that's, that's up to you and the teacher can grade the assessment, but you know what your strengths are. So from a ritual standpoint, the, the idea of uh, I have all the answers, actually, and my day is trying to show me what those answers are, is that's the truth. That's not me, Marcus, trying to be woo-woo and like, that's just real. And so one ritual that I would add to yours, I love yours, by the way, I'm going to steal yours, but a lovely way to start the day. You start the day, wake up and go, what red threads can I weave today? Rather than just letting the day happen, I could be intentional about my day. And of course, you might want to change careers. You might decide that you have no red threads in your job. You might decide that you do love it, loathe it, and there's never anything on the loved it. Okay. You might have to make big changes in your life, but before you can do that, you got to start from where you are, where you are, and you got to start looking every day. Uh, well, are there any red threads today I could be intentional about? This is really true, by the way, for parents. Cause it, well, I don't like being a dad. Well, wait a minute. There's a million different threads to being a dad. And, and some dads get a kick out of sitting down on all fours and playing with all the trains and the da da da. Some dads, they really want to be outside running around and da da da. Some dads want to. Re- like, you actually have to. Now, you may have to do everything to be doing dad yeah. stuff, but you better figure out, funnily enough, what are the red threads of being a dad? Because mm. everyone's flipping different. Again, no one really tells you that. So you're just trying to be everything. Um, But if you could wake up every day as a dad and go, what are the red threads I can weave today as a dad? Which is really just translated as what are the things that when I, what are the things that I get 
energy from as a dad? Can yeah. I intentionally go after them? Because of course, the last part about this, if you're, if you're the person who knows your red threads better than anyone else, then that means that everyone else is colorblind to your red threads. Mm. So if no one tells you, I mean, sorry, if you don't figure out for yourself, which part of being a dad is a red thread of yours, then no one will help you find it. Not because they're mean, but because they don't know. Yeah. And, and actually just to, to build on that, I mean, if you can then ex start getting your kids or your team to expand upon their own red threads and you can find the points at which your red threads intersect, then, you know, there's an opportunity. So, you know, for, I'm only thinking about my kids here. For example, my son, there are certain activities which are both red threads for him and for me. So and that, of course, that's where we meet our minds meet and it's perhaps easier to find that connection in those moments so i really like that i just want to return very quickly to something you said before and it's it's a really interesting insight and it was actually in i don't know if it was your last book or last book one the book you did with ashley goodall mm. you mentioned this point i think which was about constructive feedback um mm. so marcus at the end of this podcast recording would you give me some constructive feedback would that be a good idea no so we're in love with feedback at the moment. And Ashley Goodall, who was my co-author, he was the head of uh, leadership development and talent development for Cisco. So he had like 140,000 people. And, and I'm a researcher by background, uh, first at Gallup and now at the ADP Research Institute. So it was sort of a combination of a researcher and a practitioner in a huge company. Um, and what we saw coming down the pike was lots and lots and lots and lots of feedback and more tools, lots of apps and tools that enable everybody mm. to rate everybody all the time. And some of them, you know, we're all encountering the Yelp review, the, the review of your Uber driver. And, but we've also got performance reviews and, um, and people like Ray Dalio at Bridgewater Associates going, well, we, everybody in our company rates every, they've got a little baseball card sort of scorecard. I can rate you on every meeting and every interaction, every phone call. And, um, terrifying. Terrifying. There's even a Black Mirror episode, I think, that sort of takes this to the nth degree where you can't get a mortgage unless your score from your neighbors is a certain um, <laughs> height. Um, so the reason why there's really, well, there's really three problems with feedback, really deep problems. The, the first is that I, the assumption of feedback is that I've got the truth about you. I can see you better than you can see yourself. You only have blind spots. And it's my job because I'm the source of light and I will, I will reveal to you who you really are. You don't know, but I do. And so I own the truth about you. That's where feedback starts. By the way, I'm defining feedback as a really common definition of feedback. I'm going to tell you what you're doing right, what you're doing wrong and how to do it better. I'm not playing with words. I mean, that's feedback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so that, pres that presupposes I've got the truth about you. Well, we actually know that's not true. I am completely unable to remove my subjectivity from me. And I'm not talking about unconscious bias because of race or gender or age. I'm subjective and I can't rate you on anything. Um, it's actually called, it's a very big effect. It's called the idiosyncratic rater effect. And it basically means that when I'm rating you on a quality like empathy or strategic thinking. And even if we get very behaviorally detailed on what we mean by strategic thinking, and we give me a scale to rate you, um, it turns out that, that I am actually unable to objectively rate you on strategic thinking, because when we then apply that same 
scale on strategic thinking to somebody else. And I'm not looking at you now, Ollie. I'm looking at someone else. Well, my ratings on strategic thinking of this other person should be different than yours because this person is different from you. But it turns out my ratings aren't different. My ratings of mm. people on anything move with me, which means that I'm an idiosyncratic rater of people. It's a big effect and we can't remove it, which means that I'm an unreliable source of data about you. I just am. And and that doesn't mean that we can, oh, we add five more people rating you, Ollie. We'll take five more bad sources of bad data and somewhere along the line, it magically turns into good data. No, that's wrong. For those of people who missed statistics class, if you've got the fundamental if the fundamental measuring tool is error filled, like your thermometer is broken, it doesn't matter how many other thermometers you have, they're all broken. <laughs> Adding up all the broken thermometers numbers increases the error. It doesn't reduce it. So, so that's the first thing is that I'm an unreliable rater of you. The second problem with feedback um, is that we assume that learning is information transfer. I just tell you, hey, Ollie, when you first started this podcast, you didn't do such and such. What you should do moving forward is such and such. That, that's, that's what we assume learning is. We actually know learning isn't that. Learning is insight. Learning comes from within you. I can't, I'm not pouring information into an empty vessel, except mm. for facts. Yeah, if you get a fact wrong, I could tell you that and you could remember that fact. But most jobs isn't a function of getting the facts right, or, or rather that's the minimum. Um, excellence in anything is going to be a function of the way in which you put together the particular combination of stuff in your brain, which means all learning is insight. It happens in your brain. It doesn't happen by me putting it in your brain. So I can't really tell you. That's why advice is so pernicious. Most advice is simply you'd be better if only you were more like me. You know, that's really mm. what it turns into. And the last problem with feedback is that this is given the end of the World Cup, this is kind of interesting, but we tend to think that excellence can be defined in advance, independent of the person. So we could define salesmanship with these seven qualities. Leaders, aha, they should have these eight qualities. Um, teachers, they should have these seven qualities. And we put them in job descriptions or we then put them in performance reviews and you get rated against these seven qualities. But actually, when you look at performance, you realize that the minimum performance can be defined in advance. Minimum performance is homogenous. Every average teacher looks the same. Um, every average nurse knows how to give a safe injection. Uh, every average soccer, sorry, football player um, knows how to trap the ball, is fit, and knows how to pass the ball. All right. But excellence in anything is idiosyncratic. Messi doesn't look like he should be what he is. And yet, if you look at him compared to Ronaldo, compared to uh, Neymar, compared to Kylian Mbappe, they don't, they don't excel in the same way at all. And this is true for sales. It's true for leaders. It's true. Excellence at anything is inextricably linked to the person being excellent. So what that means is if I want you, Ollie, to excel, I can't tell you objectively what you're doing right and wrong because I'm not objective. Second, um, I can't just pour knowledge into your head because that's not the way learning works. And third, I can't define it in advance and then try to get you to be more like it because that's not what excellence looks like. Instead, what I can do, and sorry if this is a long answer to a short question, but 
what I can do is I can tell you what my reaction is because human beings, I can't reliably rate you, but I can reliably tell you how I feel. That's why Yelp, re re uh, Yelp reviews are actually good because they're just saying, I'd like the hamburger. And if I say, yeah. I like the hamburger and you say, yeah, well, I didn't, then that's okay. Two people can have this a subjectively different reaction. I could say to you, Ollie, look, I love that podcast. And if I say, I love the podcast, you can't say, no, you didn't. I can, I own my own reaction. So that's the first thing, much humbler to just go, I'm not rating you, Ollie, but I can tell you what my reaction was to this podcast. And then if I want to help you get better, my real trick isn't just to share my reaction, although that's good. What I really should be doing is sharing my reaction to those bits that worked. Yeah. And I know you want to get better, Ollie. I know you're kind of self-critical and I know you want, but the raw material for you getting better, Ollie, I promise you, is the places where it's already kind of working. Your future greatness is found in your current goodness. So I could tell you the bits where I lent in. Like you could do the same for me, Ollie. Like you could go, Marcus, that answer was, I really lent in there. Like I, if you could have, mm, if, if you want to do better at this podcast thing, you, you might want to really think about those moments where I, and admittedly, I'm just an audience at one, but I really was like, oh yeah. Ah. Mm. And, and I can then take something inside of me that's there anyway and figure out ways to refine it, understand it, be creative around it. That's not feedback. That's just how people actually are helped to excel. Give mm. your reaction and then try to get them back into those moments that worked so they can live in them and replicate them, refine them, contribute them. That's what the whole feedback thing is. Well, uh, I really appreciate that answer. Is there anything else that you'd leave us with before we wrap up? Well, I wrote Love and Work because we, well, for many reasons. It was a super personal book. I lost my dad during COVID and I lost my cousin. And there are times there, Ollie, where like you probably, where you go, what the hell am I doing? You know, what's, what's work for? What's life for? Mm. I mean, and I came out of it not cynical. I sort of came out going, I've only got a certain amount of time here. Uh, let's make sure I just am uh, as honest and as authentic as I can be in contributing it. So what I would leave, and that's why I ended up writing Love and Work is a much more personal book where I've shared, a, I mean, I'm a psychometrician by training and there's a lot of data that I've written about over the years, but this book is a super personal book about, about how do you actually use your time on this earth in a way that feels contributive, but, but nourishing to you using, as you said, the universal language of love. So I guess I would leave people with just the idea that, and this always sort of gets me emotional to think about, but you are unimaginably unique. You, you are so massively unique in terms of your uh, pattern of synaptic connections in your brain. The dent you're making when you die there will never be ever again in the history of humankind anybody who has the same unbelievably weird pattern of, of what you love, what you lean into, how you think, how you build relationships, how you make connections, what you laugh at. There'll be no one ever like you again. And if you can honor the truth of that and then see that your life is actually trying to show you that, I'm not suggesting that will remove all anxiety and all depression and all the mental challenges that so many of us do face. But if even in the darkest moments you can go, I have a beautifully unique contribution to make. And 
no one else will ever make it again. I hope that there's a way either through this podcast or through the book or through your book where people can step into that, not theoretically, but really practically so that today is just a little bit more nourishing for you than yesterday. And gosh, if we could do that, I, I think we'd have a world that's meaningfully different than the one that we're currently in. Well, it resonated with me. I love the book. And I've even written stuff down as we've been speaking, which were new ways of thinking for me. But I really do appreciate the perspective and the lens you've put on it. So thanks for the book and thanks for your time, Marcus. No, I really, really appreciate it, Ollie. Thank you.